thankful for the public prayer that have been offered and the private prayers have gone up and please continue to pray uh, this morning if you would. Not many years after our Lord had suffered the crucifixion and risen from the dead and then appeared to many and then after that number of days he went back to heaven to be with the Father there and where he is still at this time. And after that great day of triumph, after that wonderful time where we saw the marvelous power of God himself, God here on earth in human form, the miracles that he did topped off by the resurrection from the dead. Many had come to the church. And in fact, it tells us that at one time there at the church at Jerusalem, there were 3,000 that was baptized in one day. What a wondrous time to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But then shortly after, persecutions begin to arise. And the Jews who opposed Jesus Christ while he was alive here on this earth, those that did everything that they could to stop his mouth from preaching his doctrine, those who were involved heavily in having the Romans put him to death, you would have thought that they would have been satisfied when Jesus Christ died. But yet when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they renewed their hatred of Jesus Christ. And they thought they were doing God a favor. They didn't see Jesus Christ as God come into flesh. In fact, the Savior is, tells us that. They thought if they could kill everybody, that followed Jesus Christ, the claim to love Christ, that the world would be better off and God would be happy. And amongst the group of these zealous Jews was a man by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus had more zeal than anybody else amongst the Jews. And he had great knowledge. And in the world's eyes, he was destined for greatness in Judaism, in the Jews' religion. He had no peers. He was well thought of. And Saul was caught up in the Jews' frenzy against Jesus Christ. And so he began the process of persecuting Christians. He would go and have them arrested and try to get them to recant and to deny Jesus Christ. If needed to, he would rip them from their families and throw them into prison. 
And if need be, he would consent unto their execution. All for the horrible crime of believing in Jesus Christ. And we read in Acts about a man by the name of Stephen. This was one of those that Jesus Christ assisted. Uh, one of these that Paul assisted in executing for believing in Christ. And so here Paul, the young man, with all this zeal and hatred for Jesus Christ, gets letters from the chief rulers and the chief priests to go to Damascus for one reason. Now Damascus was about a hundred mile journey north of Jerusalem where Paul was. And he got these letters of approval to all the authorities there to go into Damascus and find Christians and stop them from serving Christ. If it meant imprison them, that's what he was willing to do. If it meant persecuting and torturing them, executing them, he was fine with that. He was on a mission to exterminate Christianity. And we know what happened to Saul of Tarsus on that road to Damascus because the Lord himself appeared to Paul. There on that road, the Lord appeared and stopped him in his tracks. And Paul, from that moment, that bright shining light and the voice that came down from heaven, uh, the Lord speaking to him, from that point, it was if Paul had scales on his eyes and he could not see. And he made it to Damascus all right, but he had to be led there by his hand because he couldn't see. And so Paul arrived in Damascus and he was sitting there and there was a disciple of Christ there in Damascus by the name of Ananias. And the Lord appeared unto Ananias one night and said, uh, uh, Ananias, uh, I want you to go into this particular house and, and uh, there's a man there called Saul of Tarsus and uh, I want you to go into him, go see him. Now, if that would have happened to me, you know what I would have said? Uh, ain't going to happen, Lord. Because Ananias knew the history of Paul. Ananias knew that, that Saul, as he called his name, was changed to Paul. I've used those interchangeably too frequently. He said, I've heard of this man, what he's done to the church. And the Lord told him, behold, he prayeth. And then, but here's a part that I want out of this account here in Acts chapter 9. Verse 15, after Ananias had made his case before the Lord, he said, but the Lord has said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then notice this, verse 16. For I will show him how great 
things he must suffer for my name's sake. When the Lord appeared to Saul and changed his life and renamed him to Paul, this did not, as some of us are tempted to say, turn Paul's life upside down. No, this turned his life right side up. It changed him to the point where he needed to be. And when Paul was taken from that Jewish uh, group that was persecuting Christians and killing them if need be, you would have thought that persecution and tribulation would have stopped because Paul was the best at it. But no, it didn't. Paul stopped, but the rest of them went right on persecuting. And here the Lord says, Paul, you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to suffer tribulation. Why is Paul going to suffer all of those things? Because he now believed in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that the world that we live in today hates Jesus Christ? And if you put your trust in Christ, it'll hate you too. Now, let's follow Paul's life a little bit. We know that Paul, after a certain time... Uh, you know, he went into the wilderness and the Lord taught him many things and showed him many things. And Paul later went to uh, the uh, Jerusalem and met with the apostles there. And then the world says that Paul went on three missionary journeys. And you can find these uh, if you go through all the book of Acts. Now, the world calls them missionary journeys. I want to call them by a term that we use in our church. Uh, he went on three preaching trips, and he was preaching to these people and establishing churches, preaching the gospel of Christ, and many people came flocking unto him because they said, here is the one that persecuted us, and now he is preaching the Christ whom he formerly persecuted. Isn't that amazing what God can do? Isn't it just wonderful? You know, let me just give you a little uh, a childhood thought that I had that was real erroneous. I read about when I was in school about a man, a man by the name of Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin wrote this book, Origin of the Species, and, and from there that thought, and there were others that had it too, but that thought about the theory of evolution began to spread like wildfire through this earth. And I, in a childish imagination, thought, if somebody would have killed him when he started thinking about writing that book, we'd have all been better off. Well, if it wouldn't have been Charles Darwin, it would have been somebody else. Because he wasn't the only evil one. But what if the Lord would have taken Charles Darwin and turned him around like he did Paul? 
Wouldn't you like to have seen that at the end of Charles Darwin's life? That would have been great, wouldn't it? You know, that happened from time to time. It didn't in that particular case. Uh, oh, and, and by the way, Charles Darwin admitted that his theory was wrong because he said if they couldn't find all the required fossils of all of these uh, you know, species that evolved, his theory would be proven false, well, they never found them. And just so you know, they still haven't found them. They think they have. But anyhow, Paul preached greatly. He established churches. He achieved great renown amongst the Christians. God used him mightily. If you look in our New Testament, look how many books that God inspired Paul to write in our New Testament. But in the midst of all of that greatness, the great doctrine that he preached, the great amount of churches that he established, the great amount of disciples that, that he taught the way of faith, you're going to see something else. He was persecuted. Just like the Lord had told uh, Ananias to tell him, he was persecuted. He would go into town and uh, early on when, uh, when he was traveling with Barnabas, and I can just imagine Paul and Barnabas walking into town, uh, getting ready to preach the gospel of Christ, and they're walking into town carrying on a conversation, and I imagine in, from time to time part of their conversation, I wonder what kind of jail they have in town. I hope they have a, a little bit better cell uh, prison than they had the last town we preached at. Because, see, so often they were thrown into prison. Many times, I believe Paul said five times, he was beating, beaten with 40 stripes save one. You know, they weren't allowed, the Jews weren't allowed to beat somebody with 40 stripes, so the Jews just beat him with 39. I think it was five times he went through that in prison. Beaten one time, thrown out of the city, and left for dead. Shipwrecked. All of these things, Paul suffered. Did Paul complain about those things? You know, Paul could have got rich if he would have stayed with the Jews. How much complaining did he do about that? You know what Paul said about all the things of this world that he gave up to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? He said it's all this world's good. Now I'm just going to put it in my terms. And this is really what Paul was saying. He said all this is just trash. Throw it in the dump yard. It ain't worth nothing. That's what he thought about this world and this world's riches. He said, if I've given up any of that stuff, I've got better things to have than this world's goods. So you see, the persecution and trials didn't bother Paul at all. And you remember the time even when, they, when Paul and Barnabas were thrown into the prison and their feet were put in stocks and their hands put in stocks and they were in that dark dungeon. And at midnight, you know what they started doing? They started singing. 
Now, have you ever been just just totally depressed? I mean, just to the point you don't care about life, you don't care about anything, the world's horrible, you know, everybody hates you, nobody loves me, you just want to crawl in a hole and eat worms, you know, just everything's horrible. How often in those cases do you just break out into singing? <laughs> That's not when we sing, is it? We sing when we're happy. So here at midnight in stocks, when Paul and Barnabas were there, they started singing at midnight. How in the world can you be in prison? And worse than that, in the dark part of the dungeon, and worse than that, in stocks, hand and feet that were painful? How can you be happy and sing? Because they said, there's something a lot worse than the prisons of this world. You know that old song that says, and prisons would palaces prove if Jesus Christ, my Lord, is there. How true is that? Those persecutions didn't bother Paul. Because he was preaching the truth. He had seen the Lord. And he was preaching the truth. He was preaching the gospel. And he was rejoicing in that. I mean, you look at Paul. For somebody that would go through what he went through and be happy about it, he loved the Lord, didn't he? Shouldn't we show our love to the Lord with that same zeal that Paul had? Now, all of Paul's ministry, great things happened. Great blessings. Yes, there were the persecutions. But that didn't bother Paul. He just kept on preaching. Kept on preaching Christ. But I want us now to get to the end of Paul's life. And here Paul, and if you know uh, and remember from the book of Acts, how that finally Paul was arrested there in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel of Christ. And the Romans had taken him. And Paul appealed unto Caesar. And so they sent him to Rome. And he was there under house arrest for two years. Now it's bad enough being under house arrest where you can't leave. And you're basically in prison at a house and can't leave it. What's, what's worse is he had to pay the rent on that house. You know, he had to provide his own living while he was there under house arrest. But if we read the scriptures, it appears that at some point in that particular time, Paul was released. Now, we don't talk about this a lot because it's not real, real clear. But it may have been that Paul was finally released for a short time period and then arrested again and brought before Nero. And historians believe this, and many historians believe that the reason that Paul was arrested this second time is because the Roman emperor Nero hated Christians. How much did he hate Christians? You know one of the things that Nero liked to do? He liked to take Christians that he had arrested and dip them in a, in a cauldron of oil and then hang them on a pole in his garden and then light them 
so he could have lights while he was sitting in his garden at night. Now that's wicked and cruel, isn't it? And Nero wanted to rebuild the city of Rome. He wanted to get rid of the old parts of Rome and rebuild them. And many historians believe that Nero set Rome on fire to help out his urban renewal project. But whatever the case, whether he did or not, and it doesn't make a bit of difference, he blamed the Christians for it. And so historians have said that it was during this time that Nero was <clears throat> blaming the Christians for burning down Rome that he started a great persecution against them. And now Paul was arrested once again. And Paul, while he was in prison, wrote letters to churches and to individual preachers. And the best that we can tell, the last letter he wrote, we have in our Bible as second Timothy. Let's go to 2 Timothy for just a few minutes. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. Now, I read that verse because that's kind of what I'm hanging on to when I say that Paul had been moved from that house arrest, and now he was under arrest in a, in a different manner. So he was in bonds as an evildoer, not as just someone that preached Christ, but as an evildoer. I believe he's probably referring to being accused of taking part in the burning of Rome. And Paul says, now we come down here to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. I want you to think about this. This great Apostle Paul, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, is the last words that we have recorded that Paul wrote. Are a person's last words important? You know, here was a great preacher that was getting ready to be executed. In fact, in verse 6 of this chapter, he says, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure isn't at hand. Paul wasn't talking about going to the Rome International Airport and getting a flight out of the country. Paul knew his departure from this world was imminent. His death was near. And so he was giving these words. To the young preacher Timothy. And I'm not going to take. And both books of Timothy are great. Second Timothy is special. It's got so many. Clear things about the gospel in it. In our walk. But there's a couple of things. That I want to bring to you. This morning. It's been on my mind all week long. This last part. Of. This chapter is very personal. In the first part of 2 Timothy, Paul brought some beautiful things of doctrine in. But now he's getting personal 
and specific. Let's see what he says. Now, verse 7, he says, I have fought a good fight. Now, I used to misunderstand that phrase, I have fought a good fight, because I used to wake up in the middle of the night and think about my failures here in this life, and I say, I haven't fought a very good fight. Well, that's not what Paul was talking about. The fight of the Lord is a good fight. The fight for what is right and what is good is a good fight. You know, I've heard one of the things early on in raising children. I heard uh, a man on the radio say one time, a, a good Christian man, he says, when you're raising kids, you have to pick your battles. Well, that's what you have to do sometimes with your kids. There's some battles you want to fight with your kids and others that you don't. You got to pick them. Well, Paul's saying he had a fight to pick, and he picked a good one to fight. It was a good fight that he was in. He's saying it was worth everything I did. Everything I suffered was worth it because it was a good fight. And then he said in verse 9, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. He had left Timothy behind to preach to people. And now he was sending for Timothy to come to him with the hope that Timothy would arrive before he was executed. And then notice verse 10. For Demas hath forsaken me. Now, some of other, Paul's other letters, he spoke of Demas in a positive light. He spoke of Demas as being with him there and Demas extending his greetings to other Christians. So here was Demas that was working right alongside Paul and preaching the gospel and walking in a righteous manner, being strong church members. But now he says Demas has forsaken him. Now that's sad, isn't it? But you know what's even sadder? Look at the reason why that Demas forsook him. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. You know what's even worse than that reason? Because I read that and I think about what's being said and I'm saying, would the Lord call me Demas? Do we need to consider in our lives today? Are we loving this world too much? Do we love the comforts of this world too much? Do we love all the things and the entertainments of this world too much? Do we love the, the, the world more than we love the church? I've made a statement several times. It's very easy to teach your children how important that the Lord is to you. And the way you teach your children how important the Lord is to you is what will you do instead of going to church? If you skip church so you can go on vacation, you just taught your kids that vacation is more important than church. If you skip uh, church to go to work, and I realize some of us have to work on, on rare occasions on a Sunday, but if you continually skip church to go to work you're teaching your children 
work is more important than the Lord. I know many people that will skip church to go play golf on Sunday morning. You know what they're teaching their children? Golf is more important than the Lord. Y'all get an idea in the point where I'm getting? Is anybody feeling guilty yet? You don't have to raise your hand. If you don't feel guilty, you're lying. So, you know, we'll talk about that later. Now, Demas has forsaken me. Love the present world. And he said, Christians to Galatia. We don't know why Christians went to Galatia. He may have been preaching, but he may have forsaken the world like Demas. We don't know. It doesn't make a difference. If it didn't make a difference, the Lord would have told us. And he said, Titus, another preacher, Titus, to Dalmatia. We have evidence, and Titus was a good, solid preacher. He wasn't forsaken Paul. He had just left Paul. Verse 11, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. This is the beloved physician, the author of the book of Luke, the author of the book of Acts. Only Luke, a constant companion of Paul, was still with him. By him using that term only, you know what I think Paul was saying? I'm lonely. <laughs> you know, I'm by myself. And I have a reason for making that statement. We'll get to it in just a moment, Lord willing. But let's continue on in this verse. He says, take Mark. Take Mark and bring him with thee. You remember Mark? Now this isn't the Mark that's on the gospel according to Mark. This Mark is talking about John Mark. This was the nephew of Barnabas. And if you remember, John Mark went with, with Paul and Barnabas on one of their preaching trips, and it got to a certain point, and, Barnabas, and, and John Mark said, nope, I ain't going no further. Oh, this isn't King James, but... Uh, it's in here, but stated different. I'm going to give you my version of it. John Mark says, uh -uh, I ain't going no further. Uh, I'm not cut out for this type of stuff. You know, this is too dangerous. Uh, you know, we're not getting to eat supper. You know, we get tired. We're having to walk 12 hours a day. We don't know what it was. But John Mark turned back. Perhaps he loved the world too much. And then later when Paul and Barnabas, this is in Acts chapter 15, Later, when Paul and Barnabas got ready to go on another preaching trip, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. Paul said, no. And there was such a disagreement by these two preachers that had suffered so much together, preached the gospel together. There was so much of a division amongst them over John Mark that they separated and never traveled together again. That's when Paul started taking Silas with him on his preaching trips. Must have been pretty serious, huh? Paul must have really not wanted John Mark along if he was willing to suffer the separation with his good friend Barnabas. But now, at the end 
of Paul's life. When he's alone, what does he do? As he's writing this letter to Timothy, he says, bring Mark. Bring Mark. But then notice what he says. Bring, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now, I get happy when I read that. I get real happy when I read that. You know why? Because it's telling me that whatever the problem was with John Mark, whether he had developed a love for the world, whether he was lazy, whether he wasn't willing to suffer persecutions, whatever the problem may have been, the Lord fixed it. And now he was profitable, not only to Paul, but profitable for the ministry. And I get happy when I read that. Not only because I rejoice in this, this biblical case, but I rejoice in, in that fact that God can take you and he can take me, even if we've made mistakes, even if we've really messed up in this life, even if we've, we haven't served the Lord like we ought to and haven't went to the work, God can fix us and we can still be profitable to the Lord and profitable for the ministry. So if you're sitting out there saying, you don't know what I've done, know that God does and he can fix it. It's never too late for one of God's children to walk in a godly path. He says in verse 12, Antiochus, I have left, I have sent to Ephesus the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus. When thou comest, bring with thee. Paul, if we read the rest of it, and I'm not going to, but Paul thought that he might still be alive by the time winter got there. He says, bring my coat. <laughs> That's kind of hard for us to imagine in today's society, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I can go look in my closet, and, and uh, I've got four or five coats in there, and I can go to another closet, and I can find four or five coats, and you know, I've got one in my car. And, you know, it's hard for us to imagine that he didn't have a coat. But he said, bring it. And he says, and the books. You know, I've loved books all my life. I've, I've read that growing up, that was my, my main friend, was my books. And, you know, whenever my bride and I move, you know, I start packing up my books. I can almost fill up a whole moving truck with, one, with books that I have on hand. I love books. Paul must have loved books. He said, bring the books. But then notice what Paul says. And the books, but especially... The parchments. You know what he's talking about? The scriptures. Especially. He's saying that's way more important than the books in this Lord. Now, I want to be careful in verse 14. Now, I want to change the way that I normally talk about verse 14. Now, no, okay. No, I won't. I'll just, I'll just make everybody mad, or some people. <clears throat> Notice what he says. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. This wasn't the first time that Paul mentioned Alexander. He mentioned him back over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, about how evil he was. Now, I have always 
made the statement, Paul is pointing out and calling by name somebody, and I've always said, I sure am glad my name's not Alexander, <laughs> but if your name's Alexander, you're not the one Paul was talking about. But if you're doing evil to the Lord, he is talking about you. So he goes on and he says, verse 16, at first answer, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Now, he tells us down in, in verse 17, the very part, last of it, he says, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Uh, a lot of commentators believe that he's referring to Nero, who was trying to blame Paul and all the other Christians for the burning of Rome. And many people call him the lion, and I don't have a better explanation for it. But when he was brought forth there, Paul said, all men forsook me. It didn't bother Paul to be thrown into jail for preaching. It didn't bother Paul to be beaten half to death didn't bother Paul to be tortured and whipped for preaching the gospel. He was fine with that. But now do you notice what's bothering Paul? At first, no man stood with me. Now he prayed for him. He said, I pray, Lord, don't charge it to their account. And then verse 17 Paul's friends, Paul's brethren in the church failed to come to his aid, failed to stand strong with him. Here's what Paul said he had to do. Verse 17, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That's what Paul had he had the Lord have you ever felt that way in your life friends forsook you family doesn't understand you friends in school aren't friends anymore co-workers seem distant and just put up with you you're all alone in this world have you ever got to the point where you felt the Lord's all I got. Now, granted, the Lord's more important than any of those others, isn't he? The Lord is so important to have uh, the Lord on your side. But here in Paul's last words, here I see a little bit of disappointment. A little bit of disappointment because of the falling away. Demas has fallen away because he loved the world. Others refused to go to trial with him, to stand up and say, I'm right with Paul. I believe like Paul. If you're going to kill Paul, kill me too. They forsook him. Now, there's a reason. Perhaps that all this has been on my mind all week long. Yes, Paul was lonely. He had been forsaken. So what is the lesson in that? 
for you and I this morning. What do we need to take from that? Paul said all he had was the Lord. Well, now I want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. I believe Paul is the writer of the book of Hebrews also. Uh, and if you've tried reading the book of Hebrews, you know it can get a little bit complicated. And one of, uh, I think it was Peter, made the statement one time about one of the uh, one of Paul's writings that was hard to understand. I think he was talking about Hebrews. So here's what Paul said in Hebrews years before. Years before he was left alone. Years before that when he was coming to the end of his days here on life and everybody forsook him. Years before that, what did he say? Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is Paul saying in this verse? When he says, draw near with a true heart in full assurance, what Paul is saying here is that we need to have confidence in our Lord. We need to have true faith, a true faith that, that tells us that yes, we are indeed children of God, that Jesus Christ died upon the cross for us, that when we breathe our last here on this life, that when we open our eyes, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord in heaven and be there forever and ever. We need to have that in full confidence. Do you have that confidence this morning? Are you certain of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? I hope you can answer in your heart, yes, Jesus Christ is my Savior. Jesus Christ died upon the cross for me. I had that confidence that no matter what happens in this world, when it's all said and done, I'm going to be with the Lord in heaven forever and ever. Hallelujah. What a wondrous thought is that. If we have that confidence and we draw near unto God, we can ignore everything else in this world, right? <laughs> Wrong. Because Paul said then in the next verse, verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering I trust that there's a book in heaven of God's children and I trust with all my heart that my name's written in that book the Lamb's book of life you know there are some people that have this idea that God can write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life because you're good today, and if you mess up tomorrow, he'll erase it. And then after so many other good works, you know, he might write it back. And I'm glad I don't believe that. God wrote our name. I don't have any other way to express it. God wrote our name in the Lamb's Book of Life with ink. <laughs> it can't be erased. We're there. We need to stand fast in that belief. It's important to us today, especially today, with all the horrible things going on in the world about us today. We need to stand in faith. You know, there's been a lot of mention made in Christian circles over the last few days of rejoicing. You know, 
50 years ago, there were some radicals on the Supreme Court that made a horrible decision. And this week, our Supreme Court fixed that problem. Just like years and years before, the Supreme Court made a bad decision that a person of color was not a human being. They were like livestock. And later on, the Supreme Court fixed that problem. Now, I rejoiced over what happened this week. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the lives that are saved. But that doesn't mean evil's gone out of this world. And the Supreme Court has a whole bunch of other bad decisions that need to be reversed, too. But I'm not going to get into politics. What I want to get into is the fact that whatever this world has, we've got to stand strong in the faith. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. If God promised you to be with you and take care of you and take you to heaven someday, he's going to do it. Now, here's the part I want us to remember today. Here, I think, was the problem that Paul had there and the disappointment Paul had at the end of his ministry. As he saw people leaving the church. Saw Christians that weren't willing. To suffer persecution. And make no mistake about it. Christians are being persecuted. In the United States. Today. You say well how can you say that? Because we have to be careful what we say. There are things in the workplace that I can't say without losing my job. There are sins that I can't condemn without being persecuted in this world today. I'm sure I'm thankful I'm not a politician. Uh, you know, I love politics. I just hate politicians. But, you know, they have to be careful what they say. Because not only do we have to tolerate sin in this world today, we have to be amongst those that encourage it. We need to stand up for the Lord and his book, the truth of the Bible. And he says in verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good work. Oh, we need to be doing this. We need to be encouraging one another. You know, when we come to church on a Sunday morning, we don't need to be fussing at somebody because they parked in the wrong spot, they sat in the wrong pew, they vacuumed the carpet the wrong direction, you know, they, they don't speak right, they didn't smile right, they didn't shake our hand, they didn't fix the right thing for lunch, they didn't do this or that, you know, uh, we don't need to do any of that. We need to be here to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to help one another, to pray for one another. And we need to be doing that all week long. Encouraging one another to do good works. And then verse 25. I've heard it said, there's, a, there's an old expression going on in this world today about your preaching to the choir. Well, as you can see, in the Primitive Baptist Church, we can't be accused of that because we don't have a choir. 
But to follow the world's expression, I'm going to preach to the choir. Y'all are here. Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so the much more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? Many people says that's talking about Sunday. As you see Sunday getting closer, we need to be uh, uh, more diligent and, and praying and encouraging and strengthening one another. Well, I agree with that, but that's not the day he's talking about. Well, some said, well, this is a day of suffering and persecution. Well, it's true. If we're going to go through suffering and persecution, we need to be helping one another, don't we? And strengthening one another. No, what's really been under direct consideration. That day is the day that the Lord is coming back. That's the day approaching. Now when is that day? I don't know. Have no clue. I mean, if you really want to know, I hope it's tomorrow. Actually, I hope it's today. I don't want to have to get up and go to work in the morning. You know, I'd just soon it be now. But whenever it is, if it's tomorrow, if it's 10 years from now, if it's 100 years from now, we have the commandment from the Lord that we are not to forsake the assembling and the gather of, of the saints. We need to gather together here as often as we can. Why is it important for us to be here? What's our purpose? You know, everybody says, well, our purpose here is praising the Lord and offering thanks to Him, praising God. We need to be doing that every day. Now, we do it in a public manner today, and that is important. But one of the reasons that the Lord established His church was a day that we could come together and encourage one another. And strengthen one another. Unite our hearts in worship. Whether it's through the prayers. Or the songs. Of the fellowship. And especially the preaching of the gospel. We're to encourage one another. And to strengthen one another. In this day that we live in. It's more important than any other time in the history of our nation that we meet together to serve him because we need help don't we we need encouragement we need strengthening we're getting bombarded with the world every day whether it's through co-workers school friends uh, the telegarbage the radio the internet the newspaper whatever it is we're getting bombarded with evil we need to be strengthened. We need to strengthen one another to encourage one another. You know, when I go to church on Sundays, you know what makes me happy? I mean, I'm pretty simple-minded. It doesn't take much to make me happy. You know what makes me happy on Sunday morning? For people to show up. And that's all it takes. And the more, the merrier. You know, 
when we come into church and people come in, especially ones I haven't seen in a long time, I get happy. I rejoice. I am stronger spiritually when a whole bunch of people show up to church and, and we all rejoice and have a good time of singing and preaching and, and visiting one another. I get strengthened spiritually. You know, I've been at a few times that I went to church. My bride and I have went to services somewhere, and we were there, and two other people were there. Sometimes three, sometimes four. You know, it's real easy to get discouraged in those situations. Now, to be honest with you, sometimes I don't blame them. You know, I wouldn't want to hear me either. You know, I've heard cassette tapes. That's pretty discouraging to me. You know, I had an ex-football coach that was a deacon, gave me a tape and said, listen to this so you'll be better. You know, uh, I tried that. It's, 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 well, anyhow, let's get away from that. We're encouraging one another. Each one of us here today, whether you realize it or not, is an encouragement to everybody else in this room. We're strengthened. That's what Paul was missing in his last letter. He didn't have his church with him. He was on his own. And he knew he had the Lord, and that's important, but he wanted the people with him. He wanted his brothers and sisters to strengthen him and he wanted to strengthen them oh may we never be guilty of forsaking the assembling of ourselves together let us strengthen one another and help one another that's what God wants us to do here in this life may God bless you